Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and this is a podcast for people who are new to the field or interested in public health. And today I am visiting Associate Professor Greg Devine at QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute, where he is a medical entomologist who leads the Mosquito Control Laboratory. Thank you for joining me, Greg. It's a pleasure. Now, we met a few weeks ago over coffee with a colleague. I've been an epidemiologist for a while, and I must say I've never been that interested in mosquitoes. I'm really sorry. But when when I met you, I was absolutely enthralled sort of for an hour listening, so I knew I had to ask you on the podcast. So maybe could you talk us through what your lab does and why it's important to start with? Yeah, so this lab has been around for for an awful long time. QIMR Berikhoff really began its journeys into infectious disease with mosquito-borne diseases. And initially that was focused around uh, malaria, kind of during and after the Second World War, and then uh, evolved into a whole bunch of other things, including an interest in local endemic diseases like Ross River virus, which was first um, isolated here uh, back in the end of the 1950s. So at the moment, the lab normally consists of anything between 10 and 14 people, including um, PhD students. And we do do a very broad range of things, but most of what hangs it all together is kind of an interest in a relevance to the field and to kind of operational problems. So our focus tends to be surveillance and control, um, but amongst all that, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, genomics, there's virology, uh, there's looking at mosquito interactions with pathogens, um, and there's also a lot of effort goes into um, examining new trap types for surveillance uh, of mosquitoes and for the viruses that they carry, and also new control tools as well in terms of trying to figure out uh, what we do about some of the problems that we work on. So for some people who don't know, so what are the current problems? So Ross River, is that the biggest issue for mosquito-borne diseases in Australia? Uh, So in Australia, it's certainly the one which is most widespread. So there's about 5,000 cases annually across Australia um, of Ross River virus. Most of those actually occur in Queensland. It's a disease uh, which doesn't cause significant uh, mortality, but there's a lot of morbidities. It has sort of uh, arthritis-type symptoms, a lot of kind of sore joints and bones, headaches and fevers. But in general, for most people, it's something that they get over uh, within a few weeks, and a lot of cases are actually subclinical or asymptomatic. Um, but in a few people, it does lead to kind of longer-term uh, symptoms. But it certainly makes the headlines when there are outbreaks. The last really big one was kind of around about 2015. But the thing that the, the reason we're interested in is because it's a really nice model for a mosquito-borne disease that we can actually look at in our own backyard. So it's a, a zoonosis, which means that it has a wildlife reservoir and it's transmitted between species within that reservoir by mosquitoes. And occasionally uh, those mosquitoes have the right kind of behaviour and are abundant in the right kind of numbers where they can also uh, shift those viruses from the wildlife reservoir into the human one. What, what's the right kind of mosquito behaviour? Uh, so the right kind of mosquito behaviour is you, you want something that's a generalist feeder. It likes to feed on humans and wildlife, uh, and you need something that's biting when people are likely to be exposed to it. So traditionally, we've kind of thought that the major vectors in Australia are those sorts of mosquitoes, which, uh, again, will feed on almost anything, but they're kind of uh, sort of abundant kind of during the, sort of the, the mornings and the evenings when people are likely to also be out kind of outdoors, because these are all mosquitoes which bite kind of outdoors. And so you were saying before, I just have a lot of questions. Yeah. You were saying before that it's a good model. So is the thinking that if you understand this better, it can be applied to other countries and other settings? Yes, absolutely. So a lot of what people have focused on in 
the recent decades have been kind of anthropogenic. So things like dengue, um, which have really one major vector in an urban environment, and it's just uh, it goes from a human through Aedes aegypti, this abundant urban mosquito, and back into humans again. So the pathways are relatively simple. Um, but the things that we're worried about now, in terms of horizon scanning for future problems, are things uh, that have a reservoir. And of course. You know, SARS-CoV-2 was obviously a good example of something that has a, uh, a reservoir in wildlife. And of course, that also goes for lots of mosquito-borne disease too, that an awful lot of these things are in the wildlife reservoir. And recently, for example, that would be things like uh, West Nile virus in the United States um, that was introduced to the United States at the end of the 1990s and has since been responsible for thousands of kind of human deaths. Again, that's a pretty complex zoonosis with a lot of potential reservoir hosts in the bird population quite a large number of mosquitoes, some of which just maintain, again, talking about mosquito behaviour and feeding preferences, some really just maintain West Nile virus, for example, within the wildlife reservoir, going from bird to bird. Um, and then you need something which is sometimes termed a bridging host, which is a mosquito which can take things from a bird and then transmit them into a human. So I, I want to ask a bit more about your specific research and really about what you see the gaps are and where we need to go in the future. But how did you come to mosquitoes? Why mosquitoes? You're very passionate about them. So my background is very general. So I actually started out uh, in agricultural entomology. Um, So I spent a long time working in the UK for a large government-funded research institute. And most of the work that I did was on things like cotton pests. And I spent a lot of overseas time uh, looking at at those. Uh, And then totally serendipitously, which is kind of how my career has always been, my then partner was given the opportunity to go to Peru to do a very brief stint uh, looking at hospital infections. And I managed to persuade the people that I worked for at the time that um, it would be good if I disappeared for six months as well on reduced salary and looked for opportunities <laughs> elsewhere. And so that's what we did. And I had no intention of doing anything other than sitting on the beach and whittling sticks for six months and then I would come back. But then things kind of snowballed from there and I got in touch with a bunch of people from the Peruvian public health authorities and from the US Navy who have a presence in Peru. And they were looking for entomologists, but this time to work on mosquitoes rather than agricultural pests. Uh, And that's how I got into medical entomology. It was completely by accident. And having originally just gone for six months, we ended up staying in Peru for five years. And then after we came back from Peru to have children and things, then we then moved to Tanzania after that. And then ultimately uh, back to, well, ultimately to Australia, uh, where I joined Queensland government in Cairns. But yeah, all totally serendipitous and so really medical entomology for me started about 2004. That's awesome. I didn't know all of that. I spent you know, a whole hour with you and I didn't realise. And so was your PhD after that or was it before that? So your PhD was in entomology? <laughs> so my PhD is in agricultural entomology so it's about controlling crop pests. I love that though because I think sometimes people think when they do a PhD they're set mm. in one direction but you've managed to move yeah. away from that. It's not always comfortable but um, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for being allowing yourselves to be blown around a bit. And what were some of the challenges of having to learn a sort of a new field within the same field? Actually, it was a relatively easy shift in many ways. I say it happened by accident and the opportunities came and we just kind of grabbed them when they were there. So it, wasn't, it didn't have the stress of trying to kind of, you know, follow a defined mm-hmm. pathway. It just kind of happened to land in our laps. And, you know, we were enjoying it at the time. So, you know, me and my partner were, you know, just like pre-kids. You know, we didn't need a great deal of money. Um, yeah. We felt pretty free. And the nice thing about working in a place like that is you meet a lot of people who are doing extremely different things. So very few people are, have a defined kind of career path kind of at that point. They're all just kind of testing out how different things feel. And so it's a nice community to be part of. 
And then what do you think some of the things are now that you're working on that make you successful, that you found have been useful for you? So I think, I mean, in some ways, so the biggest challenge of life for me these days is just trying to keep the lab going. So, and, and really it's something that takes pretty much all my time because the entire focus now is on trying to develop some kind of a, a bank of cash that will kind of keep everybody kind of moving forward. Mm. And some of that's done through grants, but we've got an incredibly broad kind of funding sort of base, which has been totally necessary. In fact, when I arrived at QIMR, one of the things that really sticks in my head was that one of the people who was kind of acting as a uh, sort of interviewer and to extent became a bit of a mentor after that was saying you have to escape the vortex of NHMRC. If you kind of if you need NHMRC money, then you know the chances are you may well not make it. Just vector biology has not traditionally been kind of the especially vector biology with an overseas focus has not really been any sort of a a priority for mm. NHMRC. So our money comes from uh, the US taxpayer, the UK taxpayer. It comes from local government in Australia. It comes from state government and Commonwealth government. Uh, so it's really kind of all over the place. And and that has its disadvantages in that instead of having, you know, it would be lovely to have one kind of nice, stable, five-year grant that kind of would keep everything moving forward. But instead, we kind of scrabble with a whole bunch of different grants, which all of their own kind of milestones and reporting scales and things. So it gets unwieldy, but it and so, works. So do you get any time in the lab anymore, or is it all more administrative? I very seldom. I, I don't know what it would be if I worked it out. I would guess it's, I mean, at the moment when I'm in the lab for any more than a day a month or something. Oh, that's I mean, so sad. Really, really short. Yeah. So, so as someone who whose enthusiasm was initially for field biology then mm. yeah um, it's, it's kind of changed it's changed a lot but in terms of even though you're not doing actual work anymore is it do you still have a lot of say over the the projects and the kind of direction for the lab yeah so up until recently I've, I've still been responsible for bringing in most of the money to keep the lab going so um, I do have a lot of say over what kinds of what directions we go in um, and, and it's been part of my remit here is to bring in people who know a great deal more about certain things than I do so I mean I mean you know recently we, we've well, in fact, I would say it's probably true of all the postdocs here that they all obviously have considerably more expertise in most of the things that we work on than, than I do. So my view, my kind of role is now much, you know, much more about kind of oversight. And really, I should be the one with enough free time to kind of, you know, keep kind of writing ideas down and pushing them forward and getting them funded. I suppose that should be my role, whether I'm very effective at that anymore, I don't know. But. And what's some of the work that the lab's doing at the moment? We're putting a lot of effort at the moment into, there's a lot more molecular biology goes on here than, than perhaps is true a, a few years ago. So we're very interested in surveillance in general. So part of that is surveillance for mosquitoes, but part of it is surveillance for the viruses that mosquitoes carry. So How are they different? What one is, is we're interested in, you know, what kinds of mosquitoes traps collect and what's the most kind of efficient ways of running those traps and what is it that we're doing with the information when we're looking purely at mosquitoes that uh, that's kind of informs some sort of you know operationally or field relevant kind of exercise but almost more importantly now is, is uh, so we know what kind of mosquitoes we're catching obviously that's basic kind of taxonomy but the main issue now really is what are the viruses that they're carrying so what are the, the risks that those mosquito species present so uh, there's an awful lot more as I say sort of particularly kind of genomic approaches where we're kind of doing sort of sequencing now of mosquito pools. And sequencing has now got kind of 
cheap enough that we can do a fair amount of that kind of stuff. And, um, and so people people probably know because of COVID about genomics, but that basically means you can link different strains together. Is that the general idea? Yeah, so some, some of it is, is kind of very precise genomics where you're looking for the kind of whole genomes of things, but for us it's often just looking at um, fragments of genomes so that we can identify associations between particular mosquito species and um, particular viruses. So, for example, across Australia, um, there's a fair amount of effort by kind of local and state government that goes into arbovirus surveillance. And it's a question of how do you do that in a kind of a meaningful way? How do you have enough traps out over a sort of a large enough kind of area, spatially or, or in terms of longitudinally in time? How do you make sure that you're, you're kind of capturing sort of what's out there? So, for example, one of the things at the moment we're doing is we've got uh, Melissa Graham, who's, a, who's the, uh, the lab manager here, and, uh, and Brian Johnson, who's actually employed under money that we get from local government. But they're really interested in looking at the ability of uh, traps to pick up mosquitoes and give us signals about arboviruses circulating. And a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, to some extent, is going to be undescribed because we tend to focus on specific viruses a lot of the time and we don't always see what else is, is circulating. So there, there are those kind of aspects of things. And another project that comes to mind at the moment that we're doing with... Colleen Lau and, and Louis Fuyama from the School of Public Health and University of Queensland is um, we, we've got interested in Japanese encephalitis uh, transmission risks in North Queensland. So uh, through Louis and, and Colleen at the School of Public Health, we've kind of managed to get into a project where we're looking at the long-term uh, immunity that's given by uh, JE vaccines. There is some suggestion that that wanes over time and if that's the case, then what does that mean for populations in far north Queensland where we know there is a, a Japanese encephalitis virus risk? We haven't, we, when I say Queenslanders, have not done a great job of kind of surveillance for Japanese encephalitis for quite some time. So we think we've got waning, kind of a waning immune response potentially in the vaccinated population. But we're also rather unsure about how much Japanese encephalitis is actually circulating. So what we'd like to do is to go and put some of these sort of trapping and surveillance techniques into place kind of in North Queensland so that we can see what the continued risks of Japanese encephalitis transmission are. And that's kind of overlaps with another interest of the lab, which is the invasion of new mosquito species and the risks that they pose. And over the recent, over recent years, there have been three major mosquito introductions into North Queensland two of which are very good Japanese encephalitis uh, vectors. And so we don't really know, now that they're here, does that mean that the risk is greater or the same? Or um, How did they get here, do you know? So those two got here, it's always hard to tell. Those two have a reputation for dispersing on wind currents at high altitudes, so there is possibly they got here by means that we could do nothing about, but they're here. So whilst what we tend to do in Australia is we sit at ports and airports and we carefully look for mosquitoes coming in in cargo and, and again they tend to be very defined species, the ones that we associate most with human disease like Aedes aegypti, the yellow fever mosquito or um, Aedes albopictus, the Asian tiger mosquito and those are very easily identifiable and they're very commonly intercepted at ports and airports but meanwhile where, while our attention is there then we tend not to see the other stuff coming in kind of through the, the back door yeah, and we don't that. see that until someone picks it up by accident so in both cases, those species in, the, in far north Queensland and the Northern Territory were picked up just by sporadic uh, sort of surveys done by the local departments of health, generally. Is it expensive to do the mosquito trapping? 
It is just because uh, of the distances and, the, and the, the personnel involved. So to have a really good surveillance network, you need to have people out there monitoring the traps, uh, you know, sorting them out, emptying them of the mosquitoes, um, sending them back to a central lab somewhere. So just it's our surveillance programs are very limited because they're seen as being very costly, and of course they only pick up a problem kind of once in a, a blue moon. And that's one of the issues with the sensitivity of them that we'd like to improve is that many of the surveillance techniques we use they're not very good at picking up virus at all. So often, for example, with Ross River, the human population is very obviously sick during an outbreak, uh, despite the fact that we may only be picking up kind of a few isolates or virus fragments in the mosquito population. And similarly, we have, I mean, Australia has some pretty severe zoonotic mosquito-borne diseases. So Murray Valley encephalitis is something which is uh, really has a bird reservoir and very rarely kind of spills over into the human population. And normally when it does, you know, no one knows they've got it. It's kind of asymptomatic or certainly uh, subclinical. But then for those people who are symptomatic, it's got a kind of a really high death rate. So, um, you know, 30 or 40% of people who are symptomatic with Murray Valley encephalitis will probably not recover. But it's a very, very rare disease. But Mm. we don't really have, we don't really know a great deal about where it is and where it's hiding most of the time because we have these kind of poor surveillance networks. And so one of the things you were talking about the other day that I was really interested in was around climate change because quite often people tout mosquito-borne disease as something that's going to be affected because of the temperatures Uh, and I was just interested if you could share your thoughts on that because I thought it was very interesting. Uh, Yeah, so climate, it is the fact that mosquito-borne diseases are often mentioned when everybody talks about um, what's going to happen with climate. So there's all the really obvious impacts of climate like, you know, the, the, the impacts of heat stress on the human population and on the queues at hospital entrances and all those kind of things. But in terms of the the less direct impacts on things like mosquito-borne disease, on the one hand, you might say, well, a warming world will mean that mosquitoes will move further north and further south. Uh, so tropical mosquitoes that were once associated with a very limited geographic range will be moving their range, um, and then that will allow the disease that they carry to kind of spread at the same time. But it's not really that straightforward because there are so many factors that impact whether a disease is is going to kind of increase in its prevalence and incidence or not. So a lot of that is around our own ability to mitigate the environments that mosquitoes live in and things. And so I guess one example is, uh, and a very ancient example, is that malaria was once an endemic disease in the south of England. And so after the, the First World War with large numbers of patients carrying uh, malaria parasites back to the UK, then there was a marsh-dwelling mosquito in the UK um, that was very good at kind of vectoring malaria under those circumstances. And that was a a mosquito that likes to breed in brackish water, which was typical of the marshes in southern England, and it liked to feed on humans when there wasn't much else around. Mm -hmm. But over time, three things happened. One is that the military started to use quinine as a prophylactic, so they were killing parasites, so there wasn't, the parasite pool was smaller. Uh, the other was that they began to drain the marshes around southern England, so there was less habitat for the mosquitoes. And then when they drained the marshes, they filled them with cattle, which this mosquito happens to like feeding on a great deal. So um, with the dilution impact of the, of the cattle, meaning which obviously you know, don't carry and cannot transmit malaria, the reduction in mosquitoes overall, and then the fact that we're killing the, the, the parasite reservoir by using drugs. So... That's all happened at a time when, in the last, you know, almost all of the UK's hottest years, just like everywhere across the world, have all happened in the last kind of 20 years. So mm. significant climate change, significant global warming, but, you know, absolutely no risk of ever returning to, to malaria. Yeah. And then the other one is sometimes people say that 
for urban diseases like dengue, there's an idea that perhaps you reach some climate threshold where uh, the mosquito can no longer survive very well. But in actual fact, Aedes aegypti, which is the main urban vector of dengue, uh, is so well adapted to humans that it uses kind of humans and their habitation to buffer themselves against the impacts of, of climate. So in the literature, it's commonly said that the upper temperature threshold for Aedes aegypti is kind of around about 29 degrees or something, that they'd start not doing very well after mm. that. But the reality is that, and the example that I used recently is that in 2010, in the state of Gujarat in India, um, they had one of the world's first kind of heat emergencies um, in that for an entire month, um, the minimum temperature was above 40 degrees centigrade wow. and it was in the high 40s and 50s during the day. And on the worst day of that, about 300 people died as a result of uh, kind of heat stress. And so, you know, the, the models would say Aedes aegypti wouldn't do very well at those mm. kind of temperatures. But actually, that same year was the worst year for dengue in that state that they did ever have. And that's because Aedes aegypti um, moves indoors where it's nice and mm. dark and moist and it's still pretty hot, but they're buffered from lots of the kind of the, the sort of impacts of desiccation and things. So the, the point that's being made is simply that the connection between you know, temperature change as a result of climate and global warming doesn't necessarily translate into a problem, although sometimes it will. And the place where it will is Brisbane. So there is no doubt that at the moment we don't have Aedes aegypti in Brisbane. We used to have until 1957, but it disappeared for a whole bunch of reasons, probably mostly to do with water storage behaviour by humans. But now we're getting warmer and, you know, Queensland is going to go up a degree or a degree and a half over the next kind of 10 years or so from where it was 10 years ago. And there's no doubt that that makes Brisbane a better, more suitable temperature-wise than it is at the moment. So at the moment, you know, the small remnant pockets, a couple of hundred kilometres north of Brisbane, they don't do very much, they're just hanging in there. But Aedes aegypti isn't really abundant until you get back to kind of north Queensland. But with climate change in Brisbane, and the fact that a lot of people in Brisbane are responding to erratic water supplies by having more and more water tanks installed, then there's work from a, a PhD student who was, who was here and is now at CSIRO, Brendan Troon. But the idea is that these networks of rainwater tanks, especially given you know, 10 or 15 years' time when they're not particularly well-maintained anymore, mm. they will be the, the kind of the network for the survival of Aedes aegypti. This is terrible, I have a rainwater tank. Well, everybody's got rainwater tanks. Yeah, okay. You're supposed to make sure they're properly screened. So right. you know, there's, there's no way you're going to stop eggs from your roof gutters and things going into the tanks. But if there's, you know, if all the mesh on the tanks are in good condition, then anything that hatches inside the tank isn't going to get out. Okay, but that's good to know. I don't think I didn't know that before. And I could keep asking you questions about mosquitoes. I don't know how you remember all these facts, but just conscious of time. So do you have any sort of advice or things that you tell to someone sort of that's interested in starting out in public health? As I say, I'm (laughs) I'm not a great role model because I'm not, I haven't ever done anything deliberately. But I, I think what I would say is, just stay really flexible. I think if you're determined that there's only one way mm. to get from you know, an undergraduate degree to re- retirement, then it's going to be terribly difficult to hold to that path. And you're going to get awfully disappointed. But I mean, if I think about the, there's a thousand ways to get to you know, a kind of a happy career, you know, at least happy 80% of the time, <laughs> if not 100% of the time. But I mean, so of, of the cohort of colleagues I kind of came up with through my master's degree and PhDs and things. I mean, they're, you know, some of them are still in science and, and they, they went the academic route and they've managed to keep their feet under the desk and, you know, they, they've survived the entire journey. But there are other people who, you know, who've just chosen to do different things because the opportunity, you know, presented itself. You know, I've got friends who 
you know, one ran a youth hostel, the other became a vicar. <laughs> but, you know, they're all perfectly happy, fulfilled people. But yeah. I think it's... So I would just... And I say my, my formative experiences were to be in communities where everybody was doing different stuff and nobody was very secure. And it's easy to survive in that environment. I mean, take comfort in the fact that you're not the only one who doesn't have a secure route forward. And if all your, if your peer group are all in a similar situation, there is some comfort in that. It gets really difficult once everybody that you know is obsessed by you know, school catchment areas and mortgages, then that's when life gets really tough. But if you can kind of mix it up a bit and try and, yeah, I don't know, take advantage of what comes your way and don't think there's only one way to do it. Yeah, I'm not up to school catchment yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's true though, I never in a million years thought I'd end up in academia, that just accidentally yeah. happened. And my final question, which I know you're actually aware of for, for once, is mm. do you have a favourite book or a favourite movie or something that's changed the way you've thought about the world? If you'd like to recommend to our listeners. So I was just trying to think about, I guess everybody when they were an undergraduate or kind of read something that sort of inspired them to you know, follow a particular path. So even though I did agricultural entomology as a, as a master's degree, I, I guess I was always pretty interested in kind of in parasites and pathogens. And so when I was an undergraduate, there was a, a very well-known natural historian in the, in, in the UK who she died in her 90s in, in, the, in about 2005. Her name is Miriam Rothschild, and she was a, a polymath, you know, one of these people who just did a whole number of different things. But one of the things she was extremely good at was natural history. And she was sort of the foremost expert on fleas, I suppose, and flea taxonomy during her lifetime. But she was really good at telling stories about sort of how magnificent and weird nature was. So she had, so she's got a, I'm going to forget what the name of the title of the book now is, but she wrote a number of books. Um, but uh, one of her best examples is there's a trematode which lives in frogs. And this thing has a number of different intermediate hosts. So it goes, it lives um, under the tongue of a certain number of frog species. And then uh, it has to go through a number of intermediate hosts, including water fleas, snails, and, uh, and dragonfly larvae. And it has to make its way through all those sort of intermediate hosts before finally making its way back into a frog, where it has to survive its journey from the frog's stomach back to the, the mouth of the frog, where it attaches itself to the, the main vein that the frog has under its tongue. And it was just, she was just very good at describing how remarkable all that kind of stuff is. And even though it's tiny and, and unseen, it's every bit as fascinating as the kind of, you know, the... the you know, the bigger kind of emblem species and, mm. and animals. And it still spreads through all of those different states. Yeah, and so somehow this crazy little fluke um, manages to get through all of those life stages all of the time. Well, that's awesome. Well, not the frog, but it yeah. does sound not like a good frog. story. <laughs> Is there anything I haven't asked or any big sort of picture things that you want to say before we finish up? No, I don't think so. I think it's just the, the main thing is to figure out where the enjoyment is in things because without it things in in labs around the world these days not just Australia but you know things are pretty tough so you have to be pretty sure that it's worth it so you've got to find some enjoyment in there somewhere I think that's fair excellent well thank you so much for joining me and I'm sure I will come and ask you more questions about mosquitoes in the the coming years look forward to it thank you